0: clinical corner. I'm your host, Leslie Kamenoff, and I've been a yoga educator since 1979. And most of that time, I've had the privilege of learning from working with individuals. In each episode of this podcast, I'll chat with other clinicians about the history, techniques, and stories related to the healing work they do with their clients. The premium version of this episode in which my guest and I review and analyze a video recording of them working with a client in a private session, is available by subscription at breathingproject.com. Now, let's get to our episode. Okay, the recording is in progress, and I am here with Robin Rothenberg. How are you today?
1: I'm doing great. Lovely to be here with you, Leslie.
0: First of all, tell us where you are in the world. Uh, Most people know I'm in New York City, so where are you?
1: on the way other end of the world, of the world that is called the United States. Um, I'm in Seattle. Okay. I'm looking out right now at the Olympic mountains Uh, and uh, it's sunshine and there's beautiful snow caps and I'm looking across the sound, so it's pretty blissful.
0: Well, today in New York, we have Seattle weather. It's gray and rainy and I'm looking out my window and all I see is scaffolding and that's very typical for new york city <laughs> right now. Okay. So um this is going to be uh fun because um uh, I always have fun when I'm connecting with you. Um and in particular because of uh what I um wrote to you uh was the intention of this where we are here to do the exact opposite of dumbing things down uh in short sound bites. We're here to have um, an in-depth conversation to talk shop and to um, share the work that you're doing, particularly around breathing uh, with other clinicians. And that's why we're calling this podcast The Clinical Corner. Um, And so uh, I wanted to start by just letting you introduce yourself. I'm not going to just read whatever bio you've written, which typically gets done. So uh, just let let people know uh, who you are and um, the work that you're doing.
1: So sure. So I'm a yoga therapist, certified yoga therapist. I've been running, um, I've been, I've been practicing yoga therapy since 2000 and really unofficially before that. And, um, been very involved in IYT, International Association of Yoga Therapists, um, served on the accreditation committee for six years. I'm now serving on the board. Um, my, uh, yoga therapy program has been accredited since whatever the first year was 2014 or something the
0: first round of programs i
1: i, I was yes. i was unofficially the first one that passed
0: the muster the very first one. wait yours was approved before gary's was approved
1: this is being recorded you have to edit that out right. no, we were all approved at the same time we were That's all right. there was a group it was a group, well, but somebody had to be like the first one that was looked at. So anyway, I'm just saying, anyway, we were all in it together. Um, we were the pioneers and had to suffer the consequences of that. There was a lot of suffering that went on with that process. It was challenging on all sides. Well, I was um, in it the council we are learning.
0: When, when, when the first discussions were happening, you remember that, right? Yes,
1: yes, yes. The Standards Committee, which Gary was... Very instrumental in, and yeah. anyway, along with a, a number of my other colleagues, that are other colleagues that really worked hard to yeah. mince through all that. That was, I think, the the, the most challenging of all the committees. That one. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, yeah. So yeah. Anyway, so I um, I I have been I have a private practice. I see clients uh all the time, seemingly, and uh, <laughs> and clients. then I and, yes. I am indeed. And then I'm also a teacher and a mentor and supporting um, others in the in the field who want to become skilled and proficient at offering yoga therapy. Um, there's a variety of areas that I feel like my work specifically hones in on and um, breathing pranayama and breath practices is certainly one of those. And the one that um, I wrote my books about and, and that um, because I think of the what's happened with the breath and long COVID and the effects of breathing on the immune system and all these other systems is coming to, to people's awareness, more to people's awareness, um, I have been called upon to um, educate and support others in coming to understand what I've come to understand about breathing, which has only in part come through my study of yoga and the teacher's that I have studied with and even larger part come through outside um, resources who are experts in respiratory physiology and breathing and have through that lens come to understand pranayama in a way that I couldn't understand while being in the center of the world of yoga, which has omitted, unfortunately, some important facts about physiology and how breath actually works.
0: Well it's one body. thing to omit facts, it's another to promote myths. And that gets done a lot. Yes. So we'll talk yes. about all of that. Uh you mentioned <laughs> yes. books. Um so tell us about uh your writing.
1: Uh well that's another story we could go down that rabbit dude I've been wanting to be a writer since I was eight. No, that was my first passion was writing. I've always written uh-huh. um so it's been Delightful to bring those two together. But the two uh, books that I published in 2019 and 20 or 18 and 19, I can never keep my year straight, something like that. Um, <laughs> restoring Prana, which is a therapeutic guide to pranayama and healing through the breath. And then the companion workbooks, the Svadhyaya Breath Journal, which is a way of going deep into the practices that are suggested in restoring prana. Um, those two books. Um, yes, are out there for yoga teachers and yoga therapists and healthcare practitioners. And somebody said, anybody who breathes and wants to understand a little bit better about why how they breathe matters so darn much.
0: So I have Restoring Prana right here on my screen. Um, I've owned it for a while and I was reviewing it again in preparation uh, for our talk. And um, I think it's wonderful. I think you've done a fantastic job of um of bringing together a tremendous amount of information but in a succinct way that doesn't skimp on the science and the information and that's a tough thing to do in writing is to be uh concise but also deeply uh informative and well informed so, um congratulations on that um it's uh,
1: thank you it was my intention it wasn't my intention to write such a big book uh, but it there was just so much more that needed to be said and
0: yeah. Yeah. it could have been so much bigger is what I'm saying because you you tackle a, a wide range of, of things um but uh, I think what makes it so well done is that you come at this project, writing about what you do after having had to teach it to other people for so long. And and that, that comes through. It's, it's it's one thing to have a lot of information about a topic and write about it. It's another thing to have taught other people from that um, wellspring of information um, and know how to frame it in a way that uh, people can learn from. And, yes. and so the fact that you are a, a, a teacher of teachers comes through in the writing, and um, I just you. want to let you know that it's uh, that I, I find it. Uh, I don't find a lot of writing um, about yoga to be uh, inspirational to me, but when I was going through restoring prana, I had that feeling. I
1: was inspired by ah, it. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you know, when when I was um, at my in my breath teacher's studio. Um, studying all this respiratory physiology, which was new news to me. And it's very complicated. Mm. there's parts of it that are easier to comprehend, but when you get into the chemistry of it, it gets really complicated. Parts of it and,
0: are counterintuitive as well.
1: Right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. So I'm I'm seeing it and I and I believe it. Like I get like I get that I don't get this. I get this is a vidya. there's vidya there, there's a vidya here. And I'm, and I have to bridge that. And as I'm bridging it, I'm thinking, and once I get this and can speak it in a, not like this is being presented, but in a really clear and simple way, I have to communicate this to my, my homies. I have to get this into the world of yoga and certainly yoga therapy, because we don't have this information, and we need to have this information to do our job. We cannot we cannot work with healing aspects of yoga without breath. It's key. It's central. And if we don't understand really what we're doing with the breath, we could very likely be causing harm.
0: Right. And, and we cause harm ourselves in our practice or by getting stuck in patterns that we've learned in yoga that ultimately yes. end up being... Dysfunction. And you write about that in the book. I want to go back to one thing you just said though. Yes, and but. correct you a little bit. That was not Avidya. When you recognize your own confusion, that's a state of clarity.
1: Well, so. there's um oh, there's a there's yeah, like one of the veils comes off, like, oh, I get that I'm I'm really missing this, but I still didn't comprehend it, right? It's it's taken me And I still trip over it because it gets so confusing. It's like, wait a minute, did I get that right, or did I just
0: confused about being confused? That's my.
1: (laughs) I wasn't confused about being anymore. I was like, okay, I'm really, I'm really messed up here. I get that. I was clear on that.
0: Never a problem to recognize your confusion, right? Um, So, anyway, you had um, you write about it in the book. You had a host of health issues that were diagnosed in your early twenties as uh, a laundry list of, of things, which are not uncommon diagnoses, uh, that, that people have when they come to someone like us for help, you exactly. have respiratory problems. You had weird diagnosis, having fibromyalgia,
1: um, chronic fatigue, chronic
0: fatigue, um, and, and you talk Food about-
1: sensitivities, which, you know, kind of get kind of get grouped into all of that.
0: Right. And so in your mid twenties, you encounter yoga. What was, what was your, your first yoga experience?
1: My very first yoga experience was, um, in a gentle Iyengar class Mm -hmm. and my introduction to yoga was through the, the doorway of Iyengar yoga, Mm -hmm. um, which I then went on and became certified in. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, Uh, It was an interesting experience of having never done any yoga before. And like every instruction that the teacher gave, it's like, it just went, it went, I was kind of a head case then. I still am pretty heady kind of person, academic, cerebral, whatever. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it was kind of like my body was like, yes, like this is how you've always wanted to move. You've always wanted to do this. It was just like, almost like this homecoming, like the, this, the language came in and my body just said, oh, we know what to do with this. And I, my head was kind of going, but we've never done this before. And I, I don't understand, right. A little bit of that (laughs) getting it, not getting it thing. And I remember walking out the door because I lived a few blocks from the studio. I was a brand new mom. Well, I had a six week old baby, so pretty brand new. I also had a two-year-old, but you know, I was pretty postpartum, had been on full bed rest for three months with my second child.
0: active uterus uh, is what I read, uh, something like that. Uh,
1: You know, um, now, so do you want to go, do you want me to go into like my trauma and my sad story? But, um, but no, but I mean, it's not unrelated to the breath, Uh but um, I was in premature labor with both The, the lining of the uterus is embedded with smooth muscle because I was a chronic hyperventilator, the smooth muscle and my CO2 levels were way low my whole life. And in pregnancy, of course, that even escalates because more progesterone increases breath rate. Um, unbeknownst to me, there was stressors as well going on, but uh, the smooth muscle contracts more, which will increase contractions in a organ like the uterus. So I had quite a cathartic, good, deep sob cry when I was in Ireland, studying about the breath and reading about the effect of hyperventilation on various aspects of the body and recognizing that that very traumatic period of time, that three months of being on full bed rest with a two-year-old, I can't even tell you the nightmare of that part of my life. My husband was traveling a lot. It was really, um, really, really hard. And- to learn that it also was related to my breathing pattern disorder. And that likely they put me on turbutylene, which is an anti-asthmatic medication because it has the same effect on the lung tissue as it does on the bronchioles, as it does on the uterus, which the
0: is it, di- the it relaxes.
1: Exactly. So that they vas- vasodilate so that there's relax- relaxation and the spasm stops. And that had I been a functional breather, I probably would not have suffered with premature labor. So
0: So you're learning all this breath physiology and you get to retroactively diagnose what was really going on with you at that point. And of course, the, the medical help you were seeking had no idea to look at a breathing pattern disorder at the root of what was happening for you. They just knew the symptoms and were able to treat symptomatically.
1: And how do we keep the baby from falling out of this woman at six months? That's not a good thing. You know, put her on full bed rest and give her this drug that will keep the contractions from happening. It's quite a revelation
0: yeah. to come to about something. It, it
1: was, it was an intense moment. It's like, you know, there, I remember being on the bed in the Airbnb and reading this on my computer and just having this, like, there was a lot of Vidya in that moment. And it was just like, wow, the, my entire life. Every one of these health disorders can be tracked back to um, the fact that, you know, I'm going to say this to you because we've already laughed about it. My mother, our mothers didn't nurse us. No, but really and truly the back to breathing pattern disorders, which started off with, I mean, really and truly not getting this apparatus, you know, wired up correctly so that it worked properly so that we could become functional breathers, which is actually like
0: early origins of breathing. No, 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 no. (laughs) Because, you know, that that could be a whole other conversation and not exactly the topic we're heading towards. But yes. um, what's interesting, though, is you went all the way through a certification with Iyengar Yoga. How much explicit uh, breath training was part of that system for you?
1: You know how it is. Breathe! <laughs> That's the instruction. Well, I, wanted, I
0: wanted you to say it because you're the one who went and got certified.
1: I did get certified, but I, you know, again, that was my introduction. I didn't, I had blinders on and even know that there was other kinds of yoga. I thought that was yoga. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I started getting curious about other forms and started looking into you know the doors of other rooms, um, that's when I met Gary and um mm-hmm. uh and and then it, started down that path. And then I studied with Nishchala and then, you know, Richard Miller and like, you know, like, so anyway, I've, I've, I've it's spread my wings since then. Note.
0: Gary Craftso is the Gary we've been referring to. Yes. Yes. Nishla Joy Devi. Um yes. And of course, Richard Miller, who wrote the um forward for your, for your book. Yeah, he did. And one of the co-founders of the International Association of Yoga Therapists and longtime student of Jessica Char. So all of that. So, well, well, Nish doesn't go back to Desikachar, but but Gary, no. of course, and Richard go back to Desikachar, yeah. um, and
1: and the then Krishnamacharya with Iyengar, yeah.
0: And the breath-centric approach that Desikachar has to to practice.
1: Yes, and and that really that appealed to me as being somebody who was I was I was always trying to get my Iyengar teachers to say more and do more with pranayama, and nobody would it was all about the posture and what we were doing with our shoulders and our pinky fingers and all that you know and um and and yet because i ha- knew there was something wrong here like i have these breathing issues and um so i was curious about that one of my friends teased you know pranayama you're the only person i know who actually practices you know and and then so when i met gary it was like oh wow like this whole thing it's all about the breath and so i went deep into that and did find Um, certainly some big shifts in my energy and um, emotional regulation and just clarity of mind and some really positive things with that. Um, However, you know, I'm a good Pitta student and I, you know, and the deal was breathe bigger and more. And so I just kept breathing bigger and more and then a variety of other things kind of came together at that same point that required me to talk a lot and breathe a lot. And the combination put me really far over the edge, which is when I ended up going backwards in health and then eventually seeking outside support outside of yoga.
0: Right. Now that's a really critical turning point because, and by the way, I think you refer to that in the book as the dramatization of the breath.
1: (laughs) That, Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, you're doing it for yourself, but also for the rest of the room and your teachers to show that you know that you want them to hear your ujaya, you want them to see that you're breathing fully. And see, when we take when we say to someone, take a full breath, that's a very, very loaded statement that requires a yeah. lot of unpacking of what we yeah. actually yeah. mean by that and what we intend a student to do in response to a cue like that. Um, yes. and we can certainly get into the 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 neuro the neuromuscular sensory motor uh, memories and and habits we have around what feels like a full complete breath yes. and whether that is yes. physiologically a functionally useful breath so exactly. these are really important conversations but just to go back a moment you got tremendous benefit from the yoga you were first introduced to the Iyengar method Mm -hmm. that that, that had some positive effect on your underlying breathing pattern disorder.
1: Um, Well, again, I'm coming at it now from a very different perspective because I understand that the link between movement and breath is huge. So yes, of course. Um, However, the direct experience that I had at the time wasn't so much in direct correlation with the breath, but more that, um, I had been, you know, I had this chronic pain, chronic fatigue, um, kind of low grade malaise my entire life, vulnerability to illness, that kind of thing. And when I started doing Iyengar yoga, I, 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 I do say it was like getting introduced to my body for the first time and and the movement and the strength of the movement and challenging myself physically which i had never i challenged my mind in all sorts of ways but i had never challenged myself on a physical level because i didn't have any trust in my physical body um so it 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 brought me into that realm of like wow i can do these things and i can feel strong physically it was huge it was a huge healing piece for me of course And I will say this, because the combination of my pitta nature and wanting to do what everybody else was doing and having very little awareness of how deconditioned my body was Mm. and how therefore vulnerable it was to doing these very strong movements and combining that with um, Iyengar teachers not being educated in how to adapt like a pose is a pose and everybody is supposed to do the pose the same way um and i mean there's some props and things like that for adaptation but there's still some movement some of the movement patterns that are um sort of you know just part of the lore of mm-hmm. of of the Iyengar system broke my structure so i in in you know like i have multiple injuries i got healthier and i acquired multiple pretty serious injuries in pretty much every part of my body
0: I'm trying um, to, I, body to, to conform to the the eye exactly shape yeah you're striving for
1: yeah. yeah yeah so discs in my back in my neck my SI joint hamstring and rotator cuff tears um I think those were the main ones I was, so uh, so th- I was having <laughs> i mean and they were serious i mean the neck was the worst and the last i was in acute chronic pain for 18 months couldn't raise my arm it would just fall down Let's be
0: clear: this is from you manipulating your own body or for from teachers manipulating your body for you or a combination of both okay a combination of both yeah
1: okay All Right. Had, the headstand was um a very you know the result of no real conditioning for my neck for my shoulder g- girdle for my core no understanding really of that and going starting a class in headstand with variations for you know the first 15 minutes of class
0: and right, right off of that first thing headstand
1: because i wanted to do the intermediate class because that's you know like that's was my goal yeah. and my teacher said sure Sure.
0: You're going to the beginner's classes for scrubs and you're not a scrub. You yeah.
1: Okay. No, no. I've been doing this for a year. I'm an advanced <laughs> practitioner. Whatever. Anyway, you know, so again, I learned a lot. I learned how much that part of me actually didn't serve me and I needed to edit and, you know, transform right. that. Uh, ambitious part that just, you know, was really getting me into serious trouble. And then the neck was I decided was my last injury, I wasn't going to do that to my body anymore, really changed my relationship with my body. And then I started looking for I was dedicated to yoga, loved yoga, I wanted more of the philosophy, I wanted more of what was happening on the inside. Um, and I didn't want to be putting my body into positions that were clearly not good for it. And that's when I met Gary. So, you know, when they, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher appears and that happened.
0: And you met him at a conference or something like that?
1: I met him at the, at the San Francisco yoga conference. It was the very first one where they brought together all these different traditions. And um, that was in 1992 or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I had just been certified as a Nyingar teacher and I was like, yeah, I'm not sure I want to do this anymore. <laughs> so anyway.
0: Well, in 92 yoga journal, wasn't doing conferences yet. Uh, so that-
1: yeah, it was the very first, whatever the year was that it was the very first conference, you can look it up. I don't know, maybe it's 94, but something. Anyway, it was
0: 94. It was, Yeah. Cause we were, unit we were doing unity in yoga then. And
1: it was, it was right when it switched from, Unity of yoga, it was the first conference like that, that was under the auspice of the yoga journal conferences. Yeah.
0: Probably 95 actually, but anyway.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: so, um, cool. So you meet Gary, you learn about this breath centered approach of Desikachar, And what I found interesting also when in your chapter about the diaphragm, you, you talk about the breathing that you learned. um, without necessarily having to explain yourself, yes, I learned the traditional start at the chest and move the breath down to the belly breath. Now, you know that most people learn the exact opposite pattern as part of their full yogic breath, right? Um, And whether you're going top to bottom or or, or bottom to top, um, when you're dramatizing the breath in a particular technique that way, and going for, I want to get the full capacity out of my lungs, there's, there's still this underlying um, uh, sort of uh, approach that uh, will be problematic if you get stuck in it, right? Um, now, there's a lot of anatomical rationale that you can give for going top to bottom as opposed to bottom to top when you're coordinating with movement and, and so on. And, and that's all fine and good. And I like to make a real distinction um, and I want to know if you have a similar way of thinking about it. Between, yes, this is the technique, and we're going to learn this technique. And the purpose of this is to see whether your system is free enough to get out of whatever patterns you may be stuck in, so you can now do this new pattern, right? And there's a value to that. There's certainly a value, absolutely. To that. But then to suggest that this new pattern is the is the right, correct, best, proper diaphragmatic yogic way to be breathing is just encouraging people to get stuck in a different place. And it sounds like you had this revelation also, where you realized that you, you were now stuck in yogically acquired patterns that were not serving you. Right. And, 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 and all of which can be put in that bucket, if you like, of the dramatization of the breath.
1: Yes. Yes. And, and and in that, (laughs) That accurate yeah, yeah. Yes, without a doubt there was that. And then I also because this is one of those ongoing conversations I have on a regular basis with yoga teachers that are coming to me to learn about breathing is that they too are stuck in their patterns of how they learn to breathe. And the first thing I try, you know, just like to try and like, you know, just create a little crack in the window there. Mm-hmm. Um, is to differentiate between what is factually actually happening with the breath and then where we're directing our minds and how we're activating muscles. Mm. Right. Because that's, that's the first piece to me is that you can tell yourself to move the breath however you want Mm. and you can activate the pecs, the intercostals, you know, most people actually, until they wor- really develop there's the skill, they really can't move their diaphragm intentionally. They can move things around their diaphragm. It's more subtle. It's inside. It takes a lot of introceptive awareness to be able to feel the diaphragm, but abdominal muscles, there's more surface muscles, you know, that are easier to make contact with eventually working your way into actually like, oh, I can actually feel my diaphragm moving, <clears throat> but usually that's not the start point for most people in terms of awareness,
0: Feel the things that the diaphragm is moving.
1: Yes, exactly. You can move the feel the rib cage moving. Right. Yeah. And then come to know that. Yes. The abdominal. So anyway, those, the muscles can be activated and the awareness can be moved. You can put your awareness anywhere. You can, you can put your awareness in your pinky finger, but to say the breath is moving into the pinky finger is just not actually true, right? Like awareness is moving and prana is moving in, but prana and breath, not the same in terms of that. So oh, in the same way,
0: You're not air,
1: in. exactly, air, but that's what people translate. Like, they, like they're really, they breathe in and now that breath is here and it's not quite like that, right? There's a distillation. There's a whole set of layers that has to be gone through physiologically before there's an experience of oxygen let's say hmm. in you know in the pinky so in that same way that when we breathe in air moves as air moves air does not not move as liquid moves so you cannot fill the lower lobes of the lungs without filling the top lobes of the lungs and this is i mean water, and i say uh, this
0: that air is not water that's just yeah
1: it but but when but and of course, when I, I you know, I, I teach a lot of very intelligent people and they're like, well, of course, but then they've not realized that what they are speaking actually makes it sound like air is like water. And you could actually feel the lower lobes of the lungs before the middle and the upper lobes, you know, but it's like a gas and it's going to move down and it can't get there without getting here first. And just to keep those two separate, like this is what's actually happening. And what we're doing is we're directing, directing attention And the reason to do that could be multi-fold. There could be a lot of good reason for putting your attention on the front or on the side or low or high or on the back and bringing more awareness to bring more vid, more knowledge, more understanding, beautiful. That in and of itself is a good reason to play with these patterns of mind. And then activating different muscles to, again, increase, you said, freedom of movement, but it's also freedom of mind that we're not so limited in how we perceive this is how breath feels. This is how breath moves. This is how it always is and get locked into any kind of perspective that that's the whole story. So.
0: And assuming that bigger is always better. Um, Well,
1: and then there's, then there's there's that. That's like a whole nother layer on top of that is so pervasive in our culture and has really, I think, interfered with uh, authentic transmission of the intention of yoga in general is that yoga came here to the West and in the West, the bottom line is bigger and bolder and faster is better. And so then yoga got put into that puppy mill and everything got, you know, turned through it. And, and unfortunately what got lost is the saddle. And yoga is really about moving us into our subtle being, our subtle body, our subtle awareness. And we can't get there with a lot of drama. It's the opposite of drama. It's so undramatic. Mm
0: -hmm. So, So what do you consider to be, if you could dispel just one myth for people that you consider to be the most um dysfunctional myth about breathing that yoga people either teach or practice do you have one at the top of your list
1: i think i said the one because like really like my heart hurts right now Mm -hmm. it really does because like that is it like really the beauty of yoga all the teachings are to help us go in Mm -hmm. it's a it's really a quiet practice. It's not for anybody else. There's no performance, performing postures, performing breath. That's actually not yoga. It's really an experience and experiencing, attuning to those even more subtle calls of our inner being. And so that like if we can breathe with that intention right there everything changes
0: you said something very important there that it's quiet that it's small but also that it's for us and and there's there's a trap that we teachers get into when we're practicing on our own mats and that is your mm. class your class planning you're using your practice as class not planning.
1: personal practice time for
0: other people. Yeah.
1: That's my bottom line with my trainings. Mm-hmm. Just FYI if you're coming to my training, that shit stops here. Like you prep, yes, that's part of your responsibility yeah. is to prep for your classes and to have an understanding of how you're going to support your students. And that's about your professional life. Your personal practice is how are you tending to your Panchamaya? What are you doing? How is yoga practice supporting you? in your own maturation and noticing and that that's where
0: your mind goes when you practice and having the space to see that that's a samskara you know yes yeah absolutely it's uh it's a it's a tricky and subtle subtle thing uh but it always is when you're dealing with the mind and the breath um so
1: and can i just say you cannot deal with one without being impact without the other being impacted. And that is the other teaching is that prana follows chitta and chitta follows prana. So where one goes, the other goes, it has to be like that. That's the the, the whole premise of pranayama and the mind. Absolutely. They are linked symbiotic
0: ability, but that goes to bigger philosophical issues of the inseparability of mind and body, you know, um, and, and not having a different set of values for your body than you have for your spirit. Um,
1: exactly. and that, that brings Ooh, up I like that.
0: interesting questions. Yes. The subject of another podcast, sticking with, the- mm-hmm. um, and we're going to get more into this in the second hour where we get really into, uh, how all of this carries into the age of COVID. Um, but just to backtrack a little, were you able to maintain your training programs all through the pandemic and the quarantine? uh, Or was there a period of time where you had to suspend everything and then pick up on it again?
1: So um, goddess really has a lot of fun with me. It's just always been like that. I just come to accept that this is how it is. So um, I I had two programs culminating in spring of 2020 one was uh, i mean they're they're they were part of part one and part two of my therapist training so the combined together by the three and a half year program so foundations was ending which is the first part that group was culminating the first week of march in 2020 yeah okay and, um, and then uh, in June, the second group was the they and that was the end of the three and a half year program. They'd done everything together in person for three and a half years. And this was the final module. You know what it's like when you go through a journey like that with people. Right. And you're like, and, and then you're finally at that point of graduation. You don't just say, wait, we're just going to put it on hold for a while. Like I wasn't in a place where I could put either on hold. So the one in March, half the people said, I don't, I'm not sure what's happening. I feel like I shouldn't travel. You were supposed to
0: physically all in one place, right when the worldwide pandemic was gonna get- The
1: lockdown happened, there was 10 day, my programs at that point were all 10 day modules. The lockdown happened Saturday on day nine of that training where the edict came down, everybody has to be home and then isolated. So I had half the students chose to come and half the students chose not to come. And I had to figure it out. So I think I I birthed the hybrid program. Like I didn't know what I was doing, but I was like, I've got to figure this out. I have a projector. I'll project the people who are on Zoom up on the wall. And they'll be kind of in the room, in the studio with us. And we'll all like have a party together. And honestly, Leslie, like I was just making it up and the internet wasn't stable at that point. I didn't have the ethernet set up over there. So it was coming and going and Zoom was like on overload and, you know, anyway, but right. But it worked and people said they had some of the most amazing meditations. We were doing that, that particular module was Vedic chanting mudra meditation you know like mantra it was all the inner practices chakras like going in 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 and i'm thinking this is never going to translate oh online how is this going to happen and i'll never forget one of my students going when she came out of the meditation she was like i think i just experienced samadhi i'm like okay i guess this works right everyone loved it there was a sense of cohesion and connection with the sangha it was it was amazing so it's like oh maybe i had it wrong i thought this i thought yoga therapy couldn't work this way mm. maybe it can and then i got to practice another 10 days with the whole group cuz nobody was traveling then and again they did all of their final teachings you know they had to do teach these classes with everybody and everybody did a beautiful job and it translated. I'm like, okay, well, okay. I got to reformat my entire program. Cause then I was launching a new one. I had to like get on it. So I spent the summer revamping the program and we launched in the fall and never skipped a beat. So there you have it.
0: Pretty amazing story. Mm. And, and, you know, <laughs> I
1: still point, use my projector. That's oh, yeah. how I teach, when they, I teach you know, classes, then I get to see them. Like they're not like What's, what are you doing in that little tiny square I there?
0: Bring, you have to bring their faces into the room with the people that are there in person. And yeah, it, there's...
1: Yeah, me. Uh, I mean, even when I'm just teaching a class...
0: Even when you're just... It's just you in the room.
1: So that they're big. So that I can actually see what's going on with them. And I'm not squinting or you know blind to what's happening. I can interact with them. I can see the expressions on their faces. It, it makes, makes a difference.
0: get sick with covid
1: i have had students get sick with covid while sure.
0: they were in your program
1: oh you mean when they came out mm-hmm. or during just during the program in general or because they traveled yeah, yeah. D- d- not because they traveled to the no, to no, the no, program that, yeah that. yeah yeah yes i did i did actually one of um one of my students um in april got it of of 2020 she got it pretty bad hmm. She she's been dealing with long COVID symptoms since, but she also had done the buteco training and had been doing the breath work, and she swears it's what kept her out of the hospital.
0: Okay, well, you 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 went there, you mentioned the B word, so we might as well talk about Buteiko. Uh no, 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 no. I wanted to. I have it, I I it's it's up here in my notes. So Konstantin Pavlovich Buteiko. Um mm-hmm. how would you summarize his contribution to just the world in general and in particular the work that you're doing?
1: Um, well, I would say it's probably best that I not go into the world in general because there's a lot of controversy about him and his well, yeah, life. And his work, but...
0: It's all unfounded, like every other alternative thing, Wikipedia, right? Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, one of the things that fascinated me the most when I was introduced to the the practice and then learned more about him that that I absolutely love is that uh, apparently what engendered his exploration into the breath was as a doctor and he he was put in charge as an intern uh, on a critical care unit Mm -hmm. observing monitoring the people who were essentially terminal Mm -hmm. and watching them and you know watching the monitors watching them and noticing he noticed that the people who breathed the hardest ended up dying sooner they were on higher they were on more medications and they ended up dying sooner than the people that seemed to have more steady calm quiet breaths.
0: Probably un- and he a- as well, right so
1: a lot of yes they were and yet they were still having trouble breathing right mm-hmm. so um so he asked the question, is the disease driving the breath or is the breath di- driving the disease? And I'm just like, I'm a fan just because he asked that question. Right. Like, I just think, okay. And then he spent his life down that rabbit hole. Like I gotta admire somebody who goes, like asks such a profound question where there's been no 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 exploration really, at least in Western medicine, looking at that and then was determined to figure it out. And he believed that the breath drives a lot of disease. Well, so did the yogis. Sure. It's all over the place. And all of the yoga writing that if you wanna like have health, you have to breathe right. Like it's all, that's the, the idea behind pranayama. It's, and that's the promise of pranayama, right? You'll have, you know, like glowing skin and a clear mind and a healthy body. And all, you know, like you'll sleep well, you'll digest well, everything functions well, if you breathe well. So um, and he did study the yoga teachings, he studied other, you know, uh, teachings around breath, he was very much a student that way. And so I have great admiration for that. And what he how he just his teachings came to be distilled down to is this idea of the carbon dioxide syndrome. And that by breathing too much, we're functioning Below normal levels of CO two, and because CO two is such a carbon dioxide, it's such a critical um, gas for our body to function well, and has such an important um, piece in monitoring our pH, etc. That when uh, CO two levels sus- are sustained at a lower than normal level for long periods of time, that disease happens, and that the only way to turn that around is to you know basically shut your mouth and through your nose and breathe lighter and breathe less um to and that a lot of a lot of health can be re- reclaimed by doing that
0: to increase your tolerance for co2 uh basically yes uh, so exactly and this goes to uh a key myth that um that i heard in my original teacher's training which was the, the, the goal of yogic breathing is to bring in as much oxygen as you can and get rid of as much CO2 as you can because oxygen good CO2 bad, CO2 waste gas. I know. right? Yes. And that, of course, is a recipe for that is quite literally a recipe for hyperventilation. It is. Uh, which is this one of these paradoxical things about breathing where <laughs> sure, you got a lot of oxygen in your bloodstream, but it can't get out of your blood into your body's tissues. Why? because that's what the CO2 is for. And if you don't have enough of that, if you've gotten rid of too much of the CO2, then your hemoglobin latches onto that oxygen and doesn't let go and exactly. it can't deliver it. And, and that's the thing I think that a lot of people need to understand about the physiology exactly of blood gases, uh, which you go into in, in, in the book in uh, you know enough detail to really make it clear uh, that when you get rid of too much CO2, you're in trouble and you have all the, uh, you you can, you can, you can take your, your, you can measure the, uh, oxygen in your blood and be 98% and still be hyperventilated.
1: I think I told the story of my mom in, in the book of, of that, where she I went to see her and she was breathing really hard. She had dementia and, 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 and was in a facility. They took very good care of her. She'd never had, I'd never seen her breathe like that before. And my first thought was, I mean, my first thought was she's really, her breath is very labored. This is not good. And it's not usual for her. And people are just going to think because I'm like so neurotic about the breath that I'm just making this up. But It's really true. She really doesn't usually breathe like this and this is a problem. And the nurse came over and put a pulse oximeter on her and she was 98% saturated. And I knew enough to say, that doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. There's a problem here. And she argued with me and I just stood my ground because I knew I was standing on science. And I said, yes, and she needs to see a doctor. There's a problem. And she was in congestive heart failure. Sure. Or and her lungs were full of fluid
0: acidosis. She could have had a situation okay. where her blood has, was becoming acidic and she was compensating to make her blood more alkaline by hyperventilating. Yes. All sorts of metabolic things lead to yes. issues. We, you would have had to have a capnometer on her to measure her exhaled CO2 to show, Hey, that's not normal, but they don't measure that. That's not something that you do. You know, you just not know. on
1: a regular basis. No. Unfortunately.
0: Yeah. Well, that's what my my friend Bob Freed realized about his, he was given a cohort. He's the guy that actually coined the term hyperventilation syndrome years ago. And he was given a cohort of seizure patients at the place he was working and they Mm -hmm. weren't responding to any of the meds or any of the other therapies. And, you know, they, and he's a physiologist and they said, okay, see what you can do. And he met, he noticed they were all breathing funny. Um, And he happened to have a capnometer. And so we hooked them up. It measured their exhaled CO two, and it was definitely not the numbers that are considered normal. Normal. So, as a physiologist, he was like, "Okay, they they are uh, making their blood too alkaline because there's not enough CO two in their system. Um, oxygen is not getting delivered to their brain. Their brain is hypoxic. Of course, they're going to have seizures." And so he yep. taught them the simplest, simplest kind of basic belly breathing. Using the diaphragm a little bit more efficiently, he calmed them down uh, in terms of their, their breathing. And all of a sudden, the seizures stopped happening. Uh, yeah. It's a, it a classic sort of like, you know, A, B, C, adding up the numbers as a physiologist. Uh, and all of a sudden, uh, this whole field was born of, there's something called the hyperventilation syndrome. And it came from a physiologist making well, people breathe funny.
1: The definition of hyperventilation is lower than normal or adequate levels of CO2 relative to metabolic production. You just aren't producing enough CO2 for your needs, for your metabolic needs, I should say.
0: And we so, know what those metabolic needs are because uh, we, we have like the, the, I'm sure you're familiar with the Radford nomogram, where you have these three axes, you have your body weight. You have your respiratory volume and you have your respiratory rate. rate. Yeah. And, and you can lay a straight edge uh, across those three values. And if you know, two, the third is predicted, you know, it's like basically your body weight tells you how many cells need oxygen and Mm. respiratory volume and your respiratory rate is telling is telling you what you're doing to supply them with oxygen. And if, and if, and if the, the measured values in someone don't match up with what that graph predicts, it's like something's going on with their
1: physiology. Right. So this is the piece that I think is important um, for the people listening to get that we, we accept that there's a certain caloric intake that's appropriate for our body to function well. And that it's not just um, your size or your weight, but also the what you do with your body, like how physically, if you're an elite athlete, right, your metabolic needs are going to be different than if you're somebody who works at Amazon and sits at a computer all day, right? Very different. But that there is a sort of normal range, healthy range, and eating less than that isn't Useful and eating more than that isn't useful on both ends. It puts stress on the system. We accept this around food and caloric intake, but what we are not educated in is that it actually works the same for the breath because breath is also a nutrient. Like there's a certain number of glasses of water that we need, you know, like we don't drink enough water. If you drink too much water, it's also a problem. So there's a just right amount and there is actually a just right amount of breath or a range that is within the normal realm and breathing less is a problem and breathing more is a problem. Most people, unless they have some kind of a lung function disorder and they usually know that they do because they're on oxygen, um, most of the rest of us, the problem is too much. And that is not acknowledged. And this idea like, oh, breathing is so good. So breathe more, right? Good is good. And eat, that doesn't you translate- Eat more. Food is good for you. And when I, when I put that, when I bring that in, people go, oh yeah. I'm like, well, it's no different for the breath. There actually is a healthy amount, a certain number of respiratory rate, you know, uh, you know, respiratory rate, a certain number of breaths per minute, a certain amount of volume per minute that actually keeps your body regulated and in balance. And then everything functions well. And if you load it up, front load it up with a bunch of breath, and then you just puke it out, there's a problem there, right?
0: <laughs> well, it's a, it's an apt analogy and it goes one level further and then it diverges a bit because it's not just about how much or how little you take in of air or food, it's how well your system can absorb.
1: What- efficiency, efficiency. What are you doing with it once it comes in? Exactly, exactly.
0: I would, I would say the respiratory system is far more sensitive to what you're taking and or not taking it in terms of how well it can absorb it than your digestive system. Uh, I
1: would say it this way, actually, Leslie, is it's not really sensitive to what it takes in. It's not that it doesn't care about oxygen. It takes it a little for granted, honestly, because we don't have control over it. And there's always reserve oxygen in our body. What it's super sensitive to is CO2. Exactly. That's actually the mind, the brain is always has its eye on the CO2 ball and making sure that it's where it's supposed to be. Because if that goes off, everything goes haywire.
0: Yes. Your body physiology is far more insensitive to the levels of oxygen than it is to tiny changes in CO2, which are... um, exponentially showing effects in your ability to absorb the oxygen you have, you know, a small change in CO2 leads to a large effect in your ability to absorb the available oxygen, which your body could
1: end up with seizures.
0: Sure. But also your body buffers itself against oxygen is 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 oxidative stress is bad. Oxygen is
1: is. toxic. Right? I know. So it's, again, it's, I we, you know we started this conversation talking about Avidya and Vidya, but there again, the myth piece, cause you know, I list the seven big breath myths you've already hit on several of them. Um, you know, but this idea like oxygen is the good guy and CO2 is the bad guy. You know, it's taught, to- you know, I just was listening to somebody who was like going on and on about how bad, you know, like clear out all that toxicity and the CO2. And I'm just like, um, No, (laughs) no excess. Yes. But no, first of all, we don't want it all out and we need to reserve and conserve our CO2 levels. We need them both. They're on the same team. That's how I always say it. They play well together, but they need to be in right balance. And that oxygen without the buffer of CO2 causes oxidative stress and inflammation. Mm -hmm. And I always say, you can eat all the blueberries you want, but if you want the best antioxidant in your body, just shut your mouth, breathe light, and conserve your CO2. That's
0: the irony. A lot of people that are promoting these myths about oxygen good and CO2 bad are also saying, oh yeah, but I take my antioxidants every day, you know, so I can be healthy. It's like, hmm, okay. little cognitive dissonance there, perhaps. That's a
1: lot of blueberries. Really, just...
0: (laughs) Right. Um... Actually, uh, the the role of uh, nitric oxide is actually very interesting in this whole process. And it is. let's briefly talk about that before we shift into the second half, which is the, okay. the premium content where we're going to talk about my situation and yeah. breathing and and the work that you've done with me. We have a video of you working with me online from a while back that we're going to um, review Together, this is a preview for those of you listening to the podcast uh premium content will be available at breathingproject.org where you can sign up for the subscription there'll be all kinds of links accompanying the podcast that show you how to do that and also links to uh your written work and your training programs and anything else that you yeah know. so we'll yeah have that available but uh nitric oxide um the folks that discovered some important things about nitric oxide actually won the Nobel Prize. Uh, it's a really important discovery. It's at the root of some of the most popular uh, prescription drugs on the market uh, for
1: obviously- what, what would that be, Leslie? I don't
0: know. Um, if I could sell a drug to people that let them get a hard-on more easily, I'd make a zillion dollars. So-
1: Absolutely, yeah. yep. Go uh, Viagra. By
0: nitric oxide. So um, just say a little bit about, about that, like what's the most important thing for your average person to know about nitric oxide and how the way they're breathing affects the levels in their system?
1: Yeah, so nitric oxide is also a vasodilator, which is why it works so well mm-hmm. in areas that want to, where people want more vasodilation. Um, and it uh, we produce it. In our body, in various places, one of the big areas of production is in the sinus cavity and the parasinuses. And when we breathe through our nose, that's one of the things that happens with nose breathing: is that nitric oxide is um, produced, and nitric oxide is a antiviral, anti, microbial, antibacterial, and anti-inflammatory um, chemical. Like it has many, many good things about it. And um, when we breathe through our nose, it takes care of whatever it is we're taking in through our nose and it helps to keep our lungs healthy. It supports our immune system that way. It's like our first defense against the, whatever the ickies that could, that we could be taking in when we breathe through our mouth. We miss all of that. We're
0: bypassing the- We're
1: bypassing the body's intelligence and wisdom in providing us with a nose to breathe through, right? (laughs) And all of the good stuff that happens, nitric oxide is one of the really amazing things that happens up there. There's other things. The nose has a lot of, a a, a lot. It's a very busy place when it's used well, and it's intended to be used, you know, whatever, 20, 30,000 times a day for every breath we take um unfortunately many of us have gotten out of nose breathing habits and gotten into the mouth breathing habit and so we're not getting the benefit of that so um and then when we hum or you know which brahmery anytime we create that kind of vibration um nitric oxide is increased by 15 fold which is a good, good thing. So that's one of the benefits of Bromery of humming. And, um, it can, it also helps with oxygen uptake into the lungs. It helps the oxygen to actually go deeper into the lungs so that there's better perfusion, um, of the oxygen. So again, getting back to efficiency, nose breathing, way healthier, way more efficient. And it, it costs us far less in terms of, um, Because it's less, it, it actually requires less effort to nose breathe than it does to mouth breathe. And it takes us more in the direction of the parasympathetic nervous system more parasympathetic dominance. So it keeps our system more relaxed.
0: But you have to assume there that you're not chronically restricting the throat and are stuck in like a ujjayi pattern, which actually makes you work harder to get the air in and out of your body. And as useful as that is as a technique, that's another place where people can get stuck. Uh, And and it also also tends to um, cut off our sensory experience of what the air is doing in our upper passages, in our our head and so on. And it makes me think also of the difference between uh, the breathing patterns we use when we're singing, because singing does vibrate Mm -hmm. the skull. Mm -hmm. Which increases mm-hmm. nitric oxide. But the typical pattern of breathing is a long, slow, sustained vibratory exhale followed by a short, quick, efficient inhale through the mouth. Right. And so that's different than what we do in chanting, usually. Where um number one, the the vibratory nature of the chanting, particularly if you're doing it in Sanskrit.
1: Sanskrit. Yeah.
0: And the fact that we're um going to close the mouth for the inhale and let that air that's coming in draw all of that nitric oxide that the humming is produced down into our lungs that's a it's a it's a different physiological mechanical uh act than as, as wonderful the singing is and it's good for the soul and all of that if we want to maximize what the vibrations are doing in terms of the nitric oxide it's not that short quick mouth inhale, that's gonna make that work best for you. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. anyway, um, this is uh, this is the uh, hour mark. We're at the Our hour mark. mark. So um, uh, tune in to the premium content by logging into breathingproject.org and find all of the goodies that we've put up on that platform. A slight correction to what you just heard. The actual URL is breathingproject.com. That's where you would go to sign up for the premium content we've put up there, including the full two-hour video version of the interview I did with Robin Rothenberg. And that's where you can join this thriving, growing community of educators committed to enriching their one-on-one work with students and clients. You can sign up for a no-obligation 30-day free trial. And after that, it's just $15 a month or $99 for an entire year.